Stay hungry, stay foolish. Our guest this week on The Innovation Show is New York Times bestselling author of six books, including his most recent Wall Street Journal number one bestseller, Finish, Give Yourself the Gift of Done. For over 20 years, he's helped some of the biggest brands in the world tell their story, including Home Depot, Base, Staples. He speaks internationally and was named in Inc.'s top 100 leadership speakers. He has an excellent blog and runs a program called 30 Days of Hustle. John Acuff, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. It's great to have you on the show. So many great books. We're going to focus today on Finnish. And it's funny, actually, because I was talking to a friend of mine today, and he was telling me he got off to a great start with his fitness regime in 2018. And last week, he fell off the wagon. And I thought this show would be absolutely perfect for him. Yeah, that's 100% what it's about. I like to say starting is easy, but the future belongs to finishers. What often happens is it's kind of streak mentality. So I have 10 days in a row or I have 15 days in a row. And then when I miss day 16, I give up the whole thing, which makes no sense. It's the finishers who actually are the successful people in the world. Well, and yeah, I mean, that's just statistics. 92% of goals fail. So if you know that 92% of people fail to finish and you are you actually learn how to finish, you become really rare. So I tell people, if you want to get a raise, if you want to finish your book, if you want to lose 10 pounds, you have to focus on the finish. And that does make you very unique in kind of our overstart society. You were saying in the book that it's not actually just the starting that's the challenge. So people aren't inherently lazy. One of the biggest challenges is actually people are perfectionists. Yeah, perfectionism is funny because it looks like a skill or a good character trait. Um, it's kind of that fake answer when somebody at a job interview goes, what's your weakness? And you go, I'm a perfectionist. Like It almost feels like it's good, but the reality is perfectionism will stop you in your tracks every time. Here's an example. Your friends who have the messiest cars, messiest houses, messiest offices are often perfectionists. And you go, well, that doesn't make any sense. Aren't those people type A? They're very neat. They are, but if they can't do it perfectly, they won't do it at all. And so another way to say it is a perfectionist would rather get a zero than a C minus. I'll meet perfectionists all the time that go, I'm going to run five miles every day, but today I only have time for three, so I'm just going to do zero. And you want to go, well, you know three is way more than zero. But the way they think is it's an all or nothing mentality. And so that's where perfectionism often stops you. And how have you found that in your own work, John? For example, when you get it into your writing zone, how do you find that perfectionism gets in your way? For writers, it's over-editing, where you're editing, 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 and you think, okay, I just one more draft, one more draft, one more draft. Um, so for me, it manifests in over-editing, but now that I have like an editor and a publisher, I have some commitments. And so one way to work on perfection is to have commitments that I don't get to spin out for a year on something that's due in six months. Like I have, I have an obligation. So deadlines help you. Deadlines help, and so do relationships. Um, you know, one of the greatest hacks in performance is, is a relationship and knowing how to have somebody help. You know, the big thing, like, some of, one of the craziest things that I think that I've learned in the last couple of years, and it was, I saw Derek Seavers, another author, talk about this, and it's from a study in the 1930s by a guy named Kurt Lewin, who was a scientist, and he found that if I tell you my goal the wrong way, I'm less likely to do it. So here's an example of what that means. If I said to you, Aiden, I'm going to run a marathon. You pre-congratulate me. You go, good for you. You're, oh, you're so disciplined. I can't believe you're doing that. 
and my body releases dopamine. And it's just enough dopamine to make me not actually run. Like I get just high enough to not do it. Same with writing a book. Like if you go to a dinner party and tell somebody, I'm going to write a book, they go, Aiden, good for you. Way to get, take such discipline. I'm so proud of you. And then you, you never actually write it. And I would argue that's one of the big problems with social media right now. I can go on social media and say, I'm against this. I'm for this without actually ever doing anything in my own community. And people go, hey, thanks for using your voice. Thanks for using your influence. Like you hashtag with us. And then I never actually do it. The right way to do it, Aiden, is to say, hey, will you ask me once a week if I ran three times that week? Will you ask me once a week if I wrote that week? You know, that's where you get accountability versus kind of pre-celebration. One of the things you talk in the book is about cutting goals in half, that we go for these goals. We create these big, hairy, audacious goals, but they're not actually achievable. Yeah, I mean, part of that is, you know, let's use fitness as an example. You meet somebody and they go, I'm going to start running. And you go, great. And you go, yeah, I'm going to do the Ironman. And you want to go, well, have you ever run like a 10K or a 5K, even just a K? And people like to go, it's kind of the home run mentality. Um, I see people all the time that are like, write a book in a month. And I think, you didn't write a book in the, in the last 10 years. You're going to do it in a month? Like, it, it's not going to be a good book. And so I think a big part of it is saying, I still have a crazy goal. You can still say to me, John, I want to make a million dollars. I'm just going to say, let's do that over two years or three years, not let's do it in the next three months. The mistake they make is when their excitement's at 100, they think their goal has to be at 102. Now, what happens is on day two or three, when the excitement goes to 20, the goal is still at 100. So I love that like in December, you're like, I'm losing 40 pounds and I'm going to do it. But then your excitement wanes and you're still with this huge goal. So I'd much rather you go, here's a small goal and knock it out and build. Here's a small goal and knock it out and build. The all or nothing mentality doesn't work. Go back to what you said about the dopamine kick and the social media. That works well into that, isn't it? Because you're getting slow dopamine kicks throughout the day rather than waiting for one way down the line yeah one huge one that might not come and might be completely different by the time it gets there you know so i i just think it's if somebody told me i want to write a book i'd say why don't we write a chapter and then we'll finish that and celebrate it and then we'll write a second chapter and then a third chapter and so that's the way you do it and in your 30 days of hustle program you do a really interesting thing as well i found this really fascinating cutting the goal in half yeah yeah yeah, so we actually teach that, and what we found is people who cut their goal in half are 63% more successful. Now, you have to understand, Aiden, like, that's not a sexy thing to do. You know, like, people, people like big goals sometimes, too, because it makes me look good. Like, let's admit, like, we live in a very vain culture. So, like, I'd much rather tell you, I'm doing this huge thing because then you're going to be impressed. Dude, if you get online and go... Hey guys, my goal is to write 300 words today. Nobody's going to be like, that's amazing. 300 whole words, that's so hard. But if you if you do that for 20 days, 10 days, 100 days in a row, you will have written so much more than the average person. So yeah, we actually you know, we actually instruct people to do it. Um, and the results are pretty surprising. Yeah, and you you talk about planning fallacy, and that accounts for 92% of our failed goals. Yeah, and it's just that belief that, you know, I can get more done in less time. And sometimes it happens because you don't want to disappoint other people. Like I always I say that all the time. Like it's very common in the US where I live, if you're gonna do a, a renovation project, so I'm gonna renovate my house. 
the the construction team doesn't want to disappoint you up front, so they overestimate and disappoint you in the middle. So they say, oh, Aiden, we can have your roof done in like eight hours. And you go, what? And then eight weeks later, you're still like, hey, can you fix my roof? So some And sometimes it's, you know, if we're talking about a corporate setting, you might have a, um, a boss or a company where you can't be honest. And I don't mean you have to lie. I mean that if you're the guy that goes, hey, those numbers they want us to hit, like we've never come a million miles close to that. I don't think we're going to do that. They go, oh, you're negative, Aiden. Why do you have such a bad attitude? Don't you believe in the team? And it puts you in the position of you quickly learn, I better overestimate what we're capable of because honesty is viewed as negativity. And that's a really bad environment. Glad you said that because that, that happens all the time. And then the person who wears their heart on the sleeve gets you know this negative rap. It's a dangerous environment where to ask a question is viewed as being negative. You know, like talk about a way to not improve as a company, as a business, where if somebody says, well, how are we going to do that? And you immediately go, why don't you believe in this organization? Like, oh, you're in a tough place, dude. Like that's because you're not going to get people won't be honest. They won't tell you what's really going on. I always say I don't want there to be a, a separation between the boardroom and the break room. In America, you know, the break room is kind of where you grab your coffee and you hang out. And a lot of times in a bad company, in the boardroom, you have to go, yay, great idea. That's the best. And then everybody gets to the break room. They go, this idea is crazy. Like It'll never work. And that's really dangerous. But nobody has the courage. It's not psychologically safe to put your hand up and call bullcrap. No, and you learn that. And that's, you know, and, and nobody will say that, like, I've never been in an environment where everybody's like, hey, remember, we got to lie. But you pick up on the cues, you know, like you figure it out. What kind of successful companies have you seen that get around that? Ray Dalio in his book Principles talks about it where they have like unrelenting honesty. And it starts with the leader. It starts with the leader requesting and seeking out feedback. Like if you want real feedback, it's not somebody else's job to give it to you. It's your job to go ask for it. You know, so I, I've seen, I know a great leadership team where um, a leader got a huge new opportunity and he asked another leader who was accomplished, hey, how do I not become a weird leader? Like, what do I do? And he said, okay, here's 10 things you should do. And so he said, my friend said, I knew my friends at the company wouldn't call me on it because it's really hard. It's really hard for like, Aiden, if we work together, if I say, hey, if you ever see me making a crazy mistake where you tell me, I've just asked you to do something really difficult and really brave. So what my friend did was he wrote a letter to himself and gave it to three other leaders. And he said, if you see me doing any of these 15 things, hand me this letter. That's all you have to do. Hand me the letter. I'll know what it means. And I think that's really powerful. Like that's where you, you've opened yourself to real feedback. That's really cool, man. I haven't heard that one before. That's really, really good. Coming back to finish, we talked about cutting the goals in half. But also you talk about this great thing, strategic incompetence. Yeah, so there's this book um, called Two Awesome Hours where I heard that phrase and I kind of expanded on it. It's this belief of during certain periods, I'm not going to focus on certain things. I'm going to choose to not be good at them. So, you know, an example, a family example, because we haven't talked about that, is when you have young kids, like chances are your yard won't be amazing because like young kids are challenging. They're difficult. And so you've chosen during this season, I won't get such and such done. So like, here's an example for a business. So if you're a retail company, at least in America, December is very busy, very stressful. So you should decide, you should have a conversation with your team 
every November and say, what are we not going to focus on during this busy season? Because what happens is companies pretend December is just like any other month, and it's not. And so like burnout comes from not acknowledging that, okay, this is a unique time and we need to not do these things. And so strategic incompetence or what I call choosing what to bomb is saying, you know what? I'm in the middle of a crazy travel season. And so I'm going to give myself permission that I won't get to the gym as often as I would if I was at home. Now, it doesn't mean I'm going to eat like crazy. It doesn't mean I'm going to make bad decisions. It just means that if my gym routine is I have a gym in my neighborhood where I take training classes and I'm now traveling 80% for this month, this month I know I won't be amazing at, at going to the gym. I just It's physically impossible. And But a lot of people, what they do is they go, they pretend they can do everything and then they, they fail everything. And so like I remember I heard somebody say about advertising. They said, if you give a consumer one idea, they catch it. If you give them seven, they drop all seven. That's where it really falls apart. I'd much rather you say... During this season, these two things get the attention. These other five things get it later. I'm not saying get rid of them forever. I'm saying, you know, after the busy season is over, come back to those. That makes total sense. And, and also, it works well for the work you've done on brand storytelling. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a big part of it. I mean, you have to try to figure it out. You have to say, okay, when you're launching a product, for instance, you do things you normally wouldn't do. Um, you know, you might do a lot of, you know, during a product launch for a brand, at the upfront, you might do more customer listening than you do, you will during the maintenance stage because you're coming up with the, the messaging, you're dealing with what their needs are. It doesn't mean you ignore the customers later. It just means you might go heavy on this one part of it where the rest of the year wouldn't be the same kind of degree. And so, yeah, you figure out, okay, not all seasons are created the same. This ties in nicely, John, to essentially outsourcing or delegating work. And you mentioned, for example, during busy, busy periods, you cut your email consumption down considerably. Yeah, and part of it is um, just asking for help. You know, I think that I talk in the book about what I call secret rules. Other people would call them limiting beliefs. And one of them that leaders get in trouble with is the idea that now that I'm a leader, I can't ask for help because people will think I'm weak and I don't, you know, I, like needing help is a sign of weakness, which is crazy. And so a lot of times, if I say to you, hey, you got to eliminate something, people get nervous about that. They immediately go, I can't do that. This is our busy season. Like, my boss will kill me. And I always say, well, fine. Well, then at least try to delegate it. Try to, if you can't stop, simplify. So maybe for you, it is saying, okay, during this busy season, I've got an assistant. And usually, like, I love being the guy who always checks his email. During this season, I got to have somebody else jump in with me. Or during this season, I have to ask someone in the office to help me carry the weight. A bunch of that is kind of, I mean, that's why relationships matter, is that you need other people to help you carry the weight. Ties nicely into your honesty, your radical transparency across the company as well. When people can call, you're not doing the job well because you're doing too many things. Yeah, and you need other people that will say that. I mean, but you have to have a culture where, one, you get to be honest with people, but two, that needing help isn't seen as a sign of failure. It's seen as a sign of humanity. Um, that like, you know, like, oh, it turns out they're human and they can't do everything. But that's the same thing with like football or soccer. If the goalie had to do something, he wouldn't go, you know, um, I have to play the whole game myself. Like I am also the one in charge of scoring goals. Like no goalie feels bad that they didn't score a goal all season. Like, cause that's not their role. They have to rely on other people having other roles. But I think in a business setting, we get territorial, we get concerned 
and we don't ask for help. That leads to not having fun from a personal perspective as well to achieve our goals. When we have fun, we get more done. Yeah, the, the myth is that, you know, if you ask the average person, name five words that you think of when you think of the word goal, they always say things like hustle, grind, persistence, willpower, discipline. Like they name like 10 very challenging words. They never say joy, happiness, fulfillment, laughter. And so part of this research study we did, the, the book really, you know, the book wasn't like John Acuff has ideas and hopes they're okay. The book was based on, you know, a six-month study of nearly 900 people to figure out why do some people finish and, mo- and most people don't? Like, what's the difference? And so what we found, you know, is really that if you can find a way to make it fun, like that's the distinction, Aiden. The distinction is it have fun. Like any listener listening to this right now should go, oh, have fun? Well, half of my job isn't fun. So like, how do I do that? I'm not saying have fun. I'm saying make it fun. And that means you're very deliberate about looking for ways to add fun to what you do. Now, the stat that we found was that people who have fun at what they do are 46% more successful. So I, you know, it's not that it matters a little, it matters a lot. And, and you talk about reframing, I suppose, the carrots we usually have, which are fear or re- reward, and even deadlines that we can reframe them and make them actually more fun. Yeah, you really try to figure out in a particular project, which is the thing that drives you. Scientists study uh, reward or fear. You might say, like another way to say it is approach or avoidance. So approach is, if I do these three things, I approach this goal. That means I, you know, I get to do this. Avoidance motivation is if I do these three things, this negative thing won't happen. So your job as an individual is to figure out, okay, when it comes to this type of work, I'm motivated by avoidance. Here's, you know, an example of that would be Aiden. If you got a project at work that you knew was going to be challenging, and you knew that you enjoy approval and affirmation, and and those can be bad things, they can be good things. Your job would be to say to your manager, hey, I know I don't have to, but I'd love to send out an email update every Friday um, describing the progress we've made. Because you know I'm going to want that progress to be real or I'm going to be embarrassed. So the kind of the not threat is too strong of a word, but the reality of if I don't have something real to say, I'm going to look embarrassed. We'll make sure that every Thursday as you start to think about that email that you're really going okay, where's the project at? What's the real update? What are we missing? What are we doing? Um, and so that's a kind of a consequence example. The flip side of that, a fun example can be, it doesn't have to cost, people hear fun or reward and they go, well, I just don't have the money. It doesn't have to be expensive. It can be something small. It can be that you get to take a walk during the day. It can, you know, it can be that you go to a movie by yourself. Um, you know, I, I've had big ones. I've had somebody I coached who said, you know, um, if I lose 100 pounds, I get to buy a Tesla. Now, clearly, that's an extreme one. But I've also had people say, you know, there's there's a set of markers I'd like, and they're under $20. And when I finish this project, I get these markers. And so your job is to go, what motivates me? The second thing is you figure out your coworkers, what motivates them? Like if you want to have a miserable day with a coworker, try to motivate them with the wrong form of motivation. It drives you mad. Um, an example of that would be, Every manager listening to this right now has had an employee that they liked, that was talented, but they just weren't doing their job the right way. And so you sit them down and you go, hey, we love you. You're awesome. 
but if you don't get it together, we're going to have to let you go. And if they're not motivated by the fear of that, it doesn't matter what you said. It goes right over their head where somebody who is motivated by that will go, oh man, this is serious. Like I better, I better figure out how to kind of start to perform. That person might be reward motivated. I remember I worked with a girl and we got an iPod shuffle. This is back in the day when they were really small and it was orange and she didn't like the color. And she was like, this is the stupidest thing ever. And at the time I was like, she's so entitled. But then it just hit me. She doesn't care about rewards. You know, it'd be like if you, you know, if you had a friend who was a vegetarian and you said, this place makes the best steak. They'd be like, well, I don't, I don't care about steak. Like steak is stupid. Like it, they wouldn't care. And so that's kind of the difference that kind of the, the way you look at things. From your findings with the studies you did with the 30 Days of Hustle program, for example, what success did you see? What were the most successful type of people? What were the ingredients that made up that success? Well, I mean, I think relationship was a big part of it. Having people that were in your, and they don't have to be in a physical contact. Like I'm not saying they have to live in your town. Like that can be a very, you know, somebody listening maybe in a small part of Ireland is like, great. I just have to find five people that like the same thing I like. That can feel intimidating. I just mean that their goals were shared with other people. I think that made a big role. Um, I know like I'm looking right now, I'm, I'm in my home office. I have a shelf of books that people have sent me that said, I read your book, Finish, and it helped me finish my book. Um, and that's awesome. Um, you know, Seth Godin talks about it's not, what, it's not what you do with your idea. It's what other people do with your idea. So on the shelf, I have products they've made. I have an invitation to a, um, a graduate program. The guy finished his degree and said, hey, I, the book really helped me. I love, you know, here's an invitation to, to my graduation ceremony. So stuff like that's really fascinating and really fun for me. But again, I would say that a big part of what people who finish have is that they they have the bravery to ask for help and then they make the most of that help. And one of the things you, you talk about is figuring out your own perfectionism rule. Yeah, so we all bring these kind of, you know, rules into the into the situation. And you know, it's funny in America and, and I've heard this with Europe too, like I know there's parts of Europe, there's part like Australia's this way. Australia they call it the tall poppy syndrome. Where it's like, eh, don't get too ahead of yourself. Like, don't get too cocky. And then you pull back. In America, especially in the South, it's about money. There's these all these weird things that people think like, eh, you don't want to have too much money. Like, as if that, you know, like is a negative thing. And so I had a friend say, oh, I can't believe that guy makes all that money. How does he sleep at night? And I, you know, jokingly wanted to say like probably on like Hungarian down pillows, like probably pretty well. But he had a definition that this amount of money is okay, this other amount is cocky or arrogant. So what happens is, as you grow up as a kid especially, you pick up these secret rules about who you are and how life works. So like all it takes, dude, is one teacher when you're nine to say, you're not very good at public speaking. And you internalize that and then decide, I'm not good at public speaking. And so then when you're 35... And your boss goes, we're trying to promote you. You need to lead these meetings. There's this part of you that instinctually goes, I'm not good at public speaking. I'm going to pull back from that. And you think there's no way that happens, but it, it happens. I, I, you know, in the book, I put a story of a girl who said her secret rule was that to be in shape was um, slutty or shameful. And she said to be out of shape was more humble, like which she knows is crazy. Like there's nobody who goes, oh, like, being overweight is really humble. Like that's, that's not an act of humility. 
And but she had, you know, somewhere along the lines picked up the idea that okay, to be in shape, you have to be an Instagram model and post bikini photos or whatever. Like she had this definition that wasn't accurate to what she was really doing. So that that one to me is part of the reason you need relationships because a relationship will be able to tell you, hey, you know, like this thing you're doing over and over that you don't see. This is what it's really happening, and it's it's hurting your chances to to do the things you really want to do that makes so much sense and it goes back to that leader you talked about with the letter you need those people around you to kind of keep you in check and it's not easy like i don't you know i hate when people on podcasts say something difficult and then act like it'll take you two seconds like let's be honest it's challenging one it's one is challenging to find people two it's challenging to open yourself up to that so i'm not i'm not saying like this isn't feedback for like do it overnight. It'll happen instantly. I don't I don't believe that about this at all. But I do believe it's worth the effort. It's worth the effort of finding people that will encourage you that way or challenge you that way. It's worth the effort of, you know, of making yourself vulnerable enough to get that feedback. Um I just I think that's so critical. And I think it pays off in the long run. The the leaders I know who, you know, have amazing companies and amazing careers um, are open and you're like, here's the thing. You don't know everything. Like they're really smart people that if you act like you can't ask for help, you'll miss out on so many amazing things. Brilliant. That's massive advice. And, and you know, one of the things you talk about is you're almost there. You're nearly over the finish line and boom, perfectionism will come back to strike again and try and make you stop. And I'm sure you've found that yourself as a writer. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the, you know, there's, you and I both have friends that have been working on a book for 10 years. And like books, I'm not saying, like, obviously I'm not a, like, a guy that teaches you can finish a great book in, you know, in an hour or a month or whatever. But there are a lot of books where people are afraid to finish because where perfectionism will come in is say, Hey, what if it's not as meaningful as you hope? Like, what if you publish it? And the other thing is, when you finish something, you're now exposed to criticism. Like, you know, you can say to yourself, okay, I want to write this book, but until it's out and about, nobody's commenting on it. Um, but once you release it into the world, that's when it's exposed to criticism. Um, and so there's a lot of people that write, you know, I call it the day before done. So like right before they actually finish the thing, they find a way to self-sabotage or find a way to pull back or delay and say, oh, I'll do it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll do it as soon as it's perfect. Um, and this happens, you know, this is in any sport or any field of life. I know NFL players that I've talked to that would say the same thing. They'd say, well, I'm trying to finish up. I'm trying to figure out this perfect contract before I sign with a team. And I'll, I'll say, whoa, 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 whoa. Like that's not, you know. And, you know, me giving an NFL player advice is comical because I clearly am not a not a large human. Um, but we're, we're all, you know, like, I don't care what you do for a living. We're all prey to that idea of I don't want it. I don't want my expectations to not be met. It's kind of, you know, how it reminds me. Uh, we have a show here called Bridezilla where it's about like wedding brides that go crazy. What happens with that show is that the woman has had a vision in her mind of how her wedding will be since she was six. And so the closer she gets to that reality, the harder it is to admit it won't be just like that because it can't be like, that's not how life works. So the end, the end, you know, what's funny is that 
in a race, the end is the end isn't bad. Like in a race, nobody goes, I'm running this marathon and I, I quit on mile 25. I was just like, ah, I'm done. Like, no, people push through to the end in a race, but life's just the opposite. Absolutely. And you gave me a, a little nugget there that just made me spark this thought that there's so many people out there that go, oh, I don't have time. I'm putting it into my family. And, and they act a martyr. What's your advice to those guys? One, quit, like, quit using your kids as an excuse. Like, I don't, you know, I'm a dad, so I'm not, don't hear me say anything. Like, I'm not saying parenthood's easy because it certainly isn't. But you're lying to yourself. Like, essentially what you're doing is blaming your kid for your lack of bravery to chase a dream. Like, and what a terrible thing to do to a little dude or a little, you know, little, little girl. Like, because what you're saying is, I would do this thing, but my family, like, people love to say, like, I would try this thing, but I, I would never be home. And it'd be such a, you know, I'd ignore my kids. And I mean, I, I had somebody, I was, I was kind of doing that in my own life. And I had somebody kind of pull me aside and say, hey, what's the story you want to be able to tell your kids? That you were brave and you tried the thing or that it's better to take the easy way out and give up? And I was like, oh. And so, yeah, I would just say, the other thing is that's, that's still perfectionism all or nothing, all or nothing mentality. So I know people that'll say, Aiden, I have this plan. I have a dream. I've always wanted to start a business, but if I start it, I'll become a workaholic. And they act like their only options are don't do anything and get miserable and bitter or become a workaholic who has to do Coke to stay awake 24 hours a day. Like, are you telling me those are the only options? Like there's no in between. Like, so when somebody tells me that I, you know, that one's, I love talking about that one because usually it's them hiding. But what's nice about that is I get to hide and still look like a good father. I get to say to you, you know what, Aiden, I do this, but I care too much about my family. And I get to look like a good guy or I get to go look like a, a mom who just wants to make sure she's present. And so it's win-win where I don't have to do the brave thing and I get to look like I'm a good person. I'm sure when you get to the end of your life and you look back, you'll regret that massively. And it reminds me of people stuck in dead-end jobs or jobs they hate, but they've got golden handcuffs and they go, what if? You know, you can always make more money. You can't make more time. Um, so I'm, you know, I think one of the things that I try to be different on is I'm not a like quit your job tomorrow without a plan kind of guy. That's not, you know, quitter was the opposite of that. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't try to tell people that, like, I try to tell them, be deliberate, be thoughtful, plan it out. You know, what's your financial runway? What does it look, you know, Aiden, if you said to me, John, I want to, you know, I want to start a coffee shop, I'd say, well, have you ever worked at one? Can you go work at one right now and learn on their dime? You know, like, so I'm not a jump for it guy, but I'm definitely a, you know, at least in America, 70% of people don't like what they do. And I don't like, that's a terrible way. Like life's, I would, you know, people, we always talk about life's too short. Life's too long, dude. If you hate what you do, like it just like that takes, life takes forever if you're miserable. And so I'd rather you say, okay, I'm going to try something different. I'm going to be brave and then figure out what that is. And it doesn't have to be perfect. Brilliant, John. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. John Acuff, New York Times bestselling author of Finish, Give Yourself the Gift of Done. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me.